Hey, quick break to talk about our sponsor today. We're talking about HubSpot and their new AI-powered service hub. Okay, so what is service hub? Basically, every customer today wants to be talked to in a personalized way. And before, that required tons of human agents. But now, with AI, you could do that in a personalized way with fewer humans involved. And so you don't have to scale up your team in order to deliver personalized chat and service. So check out HubSpot's new service hub to use their AI tools to give better support to your customers. That's what they want and that's what they deserve. So visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn how this all new solution can help you deliver customer service with AI to your customers. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off On the road, let's travel, never looking back Okay, so Austin Allred, is that the way you say your last name? Yep yeah, so Austin Allred's here. He's the founder of Lambda School, which I've just been shamelessly pimping on the podcast for like a year. So you probably already know about that. <laughs> he's uh, he's an interesting dude. And I don't know which Austin we're going to get. There was controversial Twitter Austin that was around for, I don't know, like a year. <laughs> and then like cleaned it up a little bit, got, you know, tightened it up as the company was growing. So I don't know. Are we going to get tightened up, Austin, or are we going to get loosey goosey? Wait, 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 you, you can request. Oh, right. for, for Lucy well, Goosey, yeah, for sure. <laughs> My comms team isn't listening right now, so we're we're good. Right, <laughs> dude. I'm in it for the I'm in it for the clicks and the listens. So you know, the more controversial and interesting things you say, the better. So, can you give Sean and Austin? Can you get background? What is your, his business is called Lambda School? What is that? Uh, yeah, so we train people to be uh, software engineers and data scientists in live online classes, but we don't charge anything until you're making more than fifty thousand dollars a year after the program. So the idea is if we can de-risk education for people, then you can kind of go for the education that you ought to. I mean, incentives are aligned between the school and the student. So we don't get paid unless, and we don't make money unless you're successful. And that's kind of how we think it should be. So like a free school and you get a percentage of their, of the revenue that the student, uh, a percentage of the salary that student makes to a certain point, And that's how you get paid back. Yep. That's right. So basically we get, 17% of salary if and only if you're making more than 50K a year. And then once you've hit $30,000 or 24 payments, monthly payments, whatever comes first, it's done. So it's either two years or 30 grand, whatever comes first. And if you don't get hired making more than that amount, then we never make anything. And give people a sense of the the sort of scale of, because it's been pretty wildly successful so far uh, and and kind of just getting started. But give people a sense of, of, you know, how Lambda School has grown over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, we started, what was it, three years ago um, with our first 20 students. Um, and now, you know, we enroll 300 or 400 students a month. Um, so, you know, we're talking in the realm of, we're, we're like, that's a lot of software engineers, actually. You know, it's not the biggest university by any stretch, but, you know, we're we're placing more software engineers and we're, we're thinking about like the UC system, right? All the UC schools, um, we're about, we're a little bit bigger than that as far as software engineering goes. Then all the UC schools combined? Correct. Wow. That's kind of awesome. Wow. So the math is if you're adding 300 a month, that's 3,600 a year if you if it just stays the same. Mm-hmm. And if you can earn 36,000, I think you said $36,000 off of that. So that means you're adding $130 million of revenue or a potential revenue, lifetime revenue. Sam, you're just flexing that mental math right now. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> I, I wish it were that simple. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, so let's say a. Our average student gets hired making 70K, right? Um, so that student will pay back just less than 25K, um, but we'll round it to 25 for sake of simplicity. Um, so if we're getting 4,000 students a um, year hired, then that's 100 million a year kind of overtime run rate. Um, but you have to finance those ISAs. So we basically borrow against them um, and we pay a lot for that. Um, and then every student that either drops out or doesn't get hired, we don't get paid for. Um, so those those cuts are, you know, the that's a difficult thing, right? And so you think about like a, you know, a university that had like a seventy five percent graduation rate and a seventy five percent hiring rate. Those are pretty good numbers. 
really quickly, you're at, you know, 50% of the students who enrolled were successful. Um, so those multipliers eat in really quickly. And that's the name of the game is making it so that as many of the students who you can possibly make successful are successful. Right. That's that's why the incentive aligned matters, right? Because traditional school, you enroll uh, and, you know, whether you get a high paying job or not, um, you know, of course, they'd like you to get a high paying job, but they don't need you to get a high paying job. They got their money either way. And so for you right. guys, um, it's not that you're nicer people than everybody. It's that the business model actually depends on you successfully getting people high paying jobs, which is what they want too. And uh, so like when everybody gets excited about Lambda School, they always talk about ISAs, which is like, you know, this mechanism, it's income share agreement, but that's kind of missing the point. It's more about the fact that you, your success is tied to the success of the student in a way that a normal university is not. And that's why your product is going to be better. That's why you're going to train them better. That's why you're going to hustle harder to get them jobs. Uh, that's why you're going to filter candidates better because you need that to work for your business to work. And uh, that's not the case for a traditional school. Totally. Yeah. There, there have already been a few points where we've kind of, you know, looked around the, the room at my executive team and, you know, our, our executives are like, they're the best in the world at what they do, you know? Um, and you look around and say, you know, we're at a point right now where we're doing a pretty damn good job. And if our only incentive were, was to like, you know, we produce a report at the end of all this or something like we would be patting ourselves on the back, but we're looking at, our business model and saying, Oh my gosh, no, we need to drive so much harder. We need to do so much better um, to, to get to where we want to be. So, so yeah, I think you're right. The, the ISA is cool. Um, but the ISA itself isn't that interesting. I mean, it's nice to, you know, it's a more flexible financial instrument for students, but the incentive alignment really is the key. And we'll dump millions and millions of dollars into getting our hiring rate up a couple of points if the math works like that. Yeah. How, how old are you, Austin? I'm 30. You're only 30. Wow. Okay. How much money has the company raised? Uh, just over $120 million. And so you guys have only been around for three years. How the hell does that happen so fast? <laughs> When I, when I first talked to Austin, I remember you had, at the, you know, we were talking, I was like, hey, I want to invest in this company. And at the time, I remember you had in total graduated 80 students. I think there was like 80 students total in the pipeline, including graduated and not graduated yet. And I remember that same math you just did where you got to like 4,000, it takes about 4,000 students to get to about 100 million in revenue. That was the math I did. I think I got all of the variables wrong, uh, like the wrong, I, I, yeah. I had the wrong like assumption of how much you keep. I had the wrong assumption of whatever, but I, I also got to 4,000. I was like, Oh, he's going to get to 4,000 for sure. And you've, you know, you're, you're on your way now. Um, but anyway, sorry, that, that's, that, that's how crazy that wasn't that long ago when it was like 80 was the total number of students that, who had even experienced the goddamn thing. Dude, Austin being 20 wasn't that long ago. Like <laughs> right, I mean, Austin losing his virginity wasn't that long ago. And that's really what right. everybody needs to know. Now they're, they're talking like in the hundred million dollar range business. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to be clear, that's like a hundred million dollars of like, you know, I almost think about it like GMV, right? Like we don't, sure. It, it's cute to say, look, if we get 4,000 students hired, then we'll eventually get that. Hey, we're not getting 4,000 students here hired. Um, we're a fraction of that. Uh, B, the the financing mechanism is probably the most important and most misunderstood aspect of Lambda School because the the cost it would you know if we could raise half a billion dollars and then just sit there and wait for that hundred million to come in, we could do that. But that's not that's not how it works, right? Like, so our our equity investors do not want to put in you know a bunch of money to buy ISAs. They want to. They want to build a technology company. And so we have a different different pools of capital that are for basically borrowing against the ISAs. And you have to, you know, so you kind of take what is the expected revenue per student at, you know, early on in the program. And then you discount that a little and we can borrow against that. And then after that, it starts to trickle in over time. But how, how, how big will this get, you think? I mean, multi-billion dollar year business? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I... Yeah, think in terms of students, right? So, casually. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, holy. it's not going to be easy to get there by any stretch, right? Like there, there's a reason no one's done this before. And that's because it's just really freaking hard. Um, but from, from a kind of macroeconomic standpoint, right? 
think about how many people there are in the United States who are making $30,000 or less who could be making 50,000 or more. Um, and you can, you know, you can move those numbers to 40 and 70 or 30 and 50 or whatever, right? Like the number is outrageous and think about how many companies would hire those people if they had the right skills, that number is outrageous too. So the difficult thing is you have to close that full loop. So you have to take someone from having never heard of you to hired and repaying, which is like three different businesses baked in there. Um, and then you have to have that right match, right? Um, so it's not too dissimilar from a two-sided marketplace in some instances where you have to find the right person, you have to find the right company, you have to train the person, then you have to get the person there. Um, and there are different mechanisms of doing that. But it's so it's, it's really difficult to do. But if it works, it's really, really powerful. And, and last question for me on this. How, do, how many people work there? Uh, right now, 170 and change. Damn, that's just a lot of stuff to do in three years. Sam, you know yeah. when, well, that's, when we were getting that's full time. We have we have full time or uh, part time kind of TAs. We got about three hundred or four hundred of those. So it's a it's a big organization for sure. What were we saying, Sean? Sam, when we were going through the acquisition process, I was like, "Oh, it's either going to be this big company, this big tech company, that big tech company, or this big tech company." And I was like, "Damn, where would I actually want to work?" And I was like, "I was like, the only company I'd want to go work at to earn out of any deal would be Lambda School. That was like the most exciting. It was like top <laughs> of my list." So I emailed Austin. I was like, "Hey, you want to buy my company? It has nothing to do with what you guys do, but we've done some live video stuff, and we're pretty smart." And uh, he's like, "All right, well, you know, we what are you thinking?" Oh, yeah, he looked at it, and then I was like, "You know, we'll take you know." Seven percent of of Lambda School, and he was like, "Yeah, no, no reply." <laughs> but I was like, "That that would have been, uh, you know, it, it, I I think every kind of five years is like a handful of companies that are really interesting to work for." When I moved to Silicon Valley, those were like Stripe and AngelList. I thought were the two most interesting companies to work at. They were small at the time, but I thought they might get big. And right now, I would put Lambda School in that bucket with uh, I don't know what else I would put. What what, what what do you think, Austin? What are the other like? I'm super like, curious who else you're going to name. Let me um, let me think. Like I think about who like the hot companies Flexport, are. I think Flexport's kind of interesting. Um, dude, I don't want to hear that anymore. That's been there, done that. <laughs> uh, we all know. We all know that's badass. Okay, yeah. Four years ago, it, it would have been the one. Like Airbnb um, and Uber at, at you know t- in the two thousand and nine range, two thousand ten, eleven, whatever. That was like the time when when those were really exciting. Yeah, I think. I mean. When I was starting Lambda School, so you know, a couple of years ago, the ones that I was like, "Oh my gosh, these are going to be incredible companies." Um, Airtable, I was just like, "Oh, that's that's going to be a winner." You could already tell. Um, same with Notion. For I mean, for different purposes, uh, super, superhuman. I was just like, "Oh, finally, someone's making a great product in this super super obvious space." Um, I'm in love with Rome Research. I don't know how big the business gets. Um, but I think it's super interesting. It's still super early. Um, I don't want to hear about Rome research. I can't stand this shit, man. I like, <laughs> because like, it's like, I'm sure the, the, the creators seem cool. The products seem cool. It just doesn't make sense to me how a note taking app can. So I, I'm a, I'm a small time. I'm a part owner in a small note taping, taking app and it does 80 K a month in revenue, which is probably what Rome does. And I'm like, <laughs> Wait, what? How does how does this company raise at a multi hundred million dollar valuation? I don't get it. I don't get how you could do that with the five dollar month thing. Well, companies that VC, yeah, com- companies that VCs understand in general get like a thirty percent premium uh, on on everything. Um, you know, because they can explain it better to, to each other, um, and so they all get it. But, uh, but yeah, Sam, this is good. The more you, ins- it's like when you insulted Gen Z and they all came for you and they all discovered our podcast this is the same insult the Rome research cult and they'll all be here to defend themselves up in arms. It's crazy, man. I don't get it. Like here, like here's what you're competing against my pen and paper. I, I don't get it, but whatever. <laughs> um, also you should tell people about, um, I know you probably told the story a bunch, but frankly it's kind of it's kind of a great story which is you're like i was sleeping in a car before i before i you know started lambda school type of thing uh so so explain explain that story so you you come to san francisco you want to live the dream and you how the hell why were you sleeping in a car yeah so i mean going back a little bit further um i i was going to college i was at byu in provo utah um and i was just kind of like I always knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, and I'd always loved technology. And for some reason, it didn't click until I was like 
20 that that was like a thing that you could just like go run tech companies. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Um, and there's this place called Silicon Valley. And so I would, you know, and the Provo scene, like the Utah startup scene is, you know, it's, it's getting there now, but at the time there had been kind of omniture and there was word perfect, but it was a very sales driven culture, um, for a variety of more many reasons. Um, but I, you know, I've found that like everybody was just like, Hey, let's build a marginally better crappy product and let's just go sell it like sell crazy. The shit out of it. Yeah. And they, I mean, that works, right? Like that totally works. Um, but I wanted, like, I had a real love for product and design and like the way things worked and like, you know, changing the world in a way that you can't just like, you know, let's make a new SaaS app for dentists and like, let's sell it like crazy. So I, I was pretty frustrated that I couldn't find that there and I wanted to be a part of that. So it was, it was even more than just Silicon Valley. It's like, I want to be in somewhere where they make great products and they make great stuff. And, you know, the, the culture in Utah was like, yeah, we'll find a developer off the shelf and they can like build a thing so that we can go sell it. And like, that was where the excitement was. Um, but I didn't have any money. Um, I didn't really have a job. I didn't really have any, you know, super tangible skills. Um, and I saw on like Hacker News, there was some guy who had like re like reworked his Honda Civic to live in it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have that same two seater Honda Civic. And it, crazy as it sounds, like I started looking at like rent in the Bay Area and it was like 800 bucks a month. And I was like, I can't, who can afford 800 bucks a month? That's ridiculous. Right. For one um, Yeah. So I just, put an air mattress in my car and drove out there and said, I'll figure it out and eventually did. And it worked out. Um, what was your, what was your job before Lambda? I did like some marketing agency stuff, like some SEO stuff when that was a thing that people like that was a career path for a while. was like, you could do SEO in, in San Francisco. Uh, no, just freelance. Like there's, there's actually a company that I got connected into randomly that they needed like, SEO copywriting, right? So it wasn't like real SEO. It was just like, hey, we need content about this thing and we don't even care what it says. So <laughs> we just need like, we just need, we just need a monkey to pound out some words right. and I'll pay you like $5 for every 500 words that you pump out. Right. We, we need 2,000 so words and 25% of them need to say the word email. Totally. Like <laughs> well, and I, I, yeah, I was working with a buddy on it and he probably had the better methodology. He would get super high and just like, <laughs> Crank stuff out like crazy <laughs> while he was tripping, and nobody cared because it said the right amount of words and the right, you know, phrasing. Um, but I, I never. But then, but went. then you, you like, you like thought of this idea, and then you went through Y Combinator, and that's what, kind of what, how you was got. Was there to an it. in between? So you, you, you go to San Francisco, you're in your car. What happens between there and Lambda School? Yeah, so actually, I, I started another company between there and Lambda School. Um, so that was a we're saying, hey, social media is all over the place, but it's not fact checked, and we're still relying on these reporters who are at the end of the day, just like random people on social media trying to like figure out what's going on. So we built like a crowdsourced newsroom, kind of a Wikipedia for journalism, basically where you can go in and the product would let you like pull in sources and fact check them and kind of try to do that in real time. Um, it was semi working, but it didn't, I mean, it was so far from actually working. We had a bunch of users, um, but far from a revenue model, which turns out is, you know, you want to be close to a revenue model. Um, so it raised a little, like half a million dollars, burned through that. And there's a long story and it ended up going to zero. Um, and then went to work at a company called LendUp, which was a kind of YC company in San Francisco. Um, so that was basically me moving from, Hey, I'm like 10 steps away from money changing hands. I want to get as close to the money as I can. Um, and so I kind of went down the fintech-y route, which is a lot of why Lambda School worked, because I was always thinking about risk and capital markets and you know how you can move money from one place to another and what the IRR needs to be to make that happen and how securitizations happen and stuff like that. Um, and then when Lambda School was just getting started, I was like, wait, there's got to be a different way that you could you know, think about this risk and shift it around and pool it and that kind of thing. And you, you're Mormon, right? Uh -huh. you from 
um, I just went and lived in Utah for, I mean, I, um, I, I lived in San Francisco. Uh, I gave up my place. Now I just live on Airbnbs and I picked Utah because the Mormons fascinate the shit out of me. <laughs> you know, Sean and I, our friend, sometimes when I'm out or Sean's out, he's our friend named Stu subs in for one of us and he converted to Mormonism, which is weird because wow. no one in his, fa- no one in his family's Mormon. <laughs> Like, I've never heard of that. And so he kind of like taught me about it. And then I also had a friend of a friend with Josh James, the guy who started Armature. And he like would tell. And so I'm like crazy fascinated with with Mormons. And the culture there was so unique and interesting. What is it that makes this so this high penetration of interesting startup entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a a few things like the for me, the most formative period of my life and by a lot was serving a mission. Um, So. For those of you that don't know, uh, Mormons, when they're, it used to be when they're 19, when they're 18 now, you basically put in your papers and you say, hey, send me somewhere and I'll go teach people about Jesus and do service all day, basically. Um, so I put in my papers when I was 18. Um, and then what they call it a mission call. So basically a letter comes and you gather around with all your family that says, you've been called to serve in this area. Um, so for me, it was Donetsk, Ukraine. So Eastern Ukraine, kind of up against the border of Russia. Um, so you spend a little while trying to learn the language and kind of getting your feet wet. And then you're basically just shipped out and you have to figure it out. So I had to learn to speak Russian. Um, you know, I, I went on my mission Isn't in like kind 2000- of a crazy ask to be like, yo, just learn to speak Russian. Uh, you only have two years on the mission anyways, right? So it's like... What do you... It's it's not that crazy, dude. What happens when, you're, when your family immigrated here? Like, that's just what you do, right? I mean, so many people have to do that. <laughs> well, the, it's one thing to do it, like, kind of on your own choice, in your own accord. Like, I want to go to America. That's why, you know, and I speak a little bit of English. I'll improve it. Versus, like, you're told, hey... An organization. Ukraine like, it is for you. Start brushing up. You know, you, you want to... Even if you wanted to spread the gospel... You you literally have to first learn a language, which takes months. So what did you even do the first few months when you don't know how to speak Russian? Yeah, so so you go to the missionary training center, and that's like uh like Lamb School is kind of modeled after that, actually. So it's like you show up on day one, and by the end of the day, you're like you should know the alphabet and you should be praying in Russian, right? And obviously it's terrible. Um, and you don't understand cases, you don't understand the grammar, so, so but what's like the you Lambda just school equivalent of day one. It, what, what, what do you know? Day one of Lambda. I mean, day one, you should be submitting your first pull request, right? Like, um, and I don't think that's actually day one anymore. That's, uh, but like, yeah, you're going to build your first website using HTML and CSS. Like you're going to go. Um, and the pace is intense and it's very much like you're going to get thrown into the deep end and figure it out because that's the only way anybody learns anyway. I mean, like I, so I, you know, I came back, you know, spoke Russian fluently um, and went and took a couple college classes and they had, you know, a way that you can like test out based on what your level of Russian was. I think I got like three years of full, like I got like a hundred credits of Russian and, you know, you still go into the Russian classes of the people who weren't living in the country and they're like, you know, trying to figure it out. And you're like, oh my gosh, there's, there's no way, there's no way. (laughs) Um, so there's definitely something to immersion and just like way, getting thrown in. Mormon question. Do you keep track of how many people you convert? Like, do you know how many people, you know, sort of heard the message and, and actually like sort of went down the path? Yeah. What's your, like your quota? Yeah. I mean, so it, it depends a lot, right? Um, if you're in South America or Africa, it's very different than Eastern Ukraine. Um, so in my mission, if you converted anybody like over the course of two years, that was a win. Right. Like one is a win. Yeah. And like my friends in South America, like, you know, two or three on a weekend is normal. Um, so it just totally Holy depends. Um, and the then, Ukraines don't, the Ukraines don't need Jesus. They're just not into it. I mean, take 25 years of government forced atheism and then layer on, Hey, we're this American church you should join. Like it's, there's not product market fit there. Right. To say the and, least. And, 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 also and stop, you got good at sales. Yeah. Stop drinking and smoking and only have sex with your partner who you're married to. Like the, this is not, <laughs> it's not interesting to the <laughs> average Ukrainian. Okay, so, like boring. Okay, so what was your approach? Then? How, do, how did you go about it? What, what's the sales funnel? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, there are a couple ways. First is English classes. 
Um, so I taught an insane amount of English. Right. Um, and for a couple of reasons. First, that tends to bring out people who are a little bit more open-minded about, like, if you're like hardcore Russian Orthodox, you wish you could go back to the Soviet Union, like you're not going to come to an English class. And a lot of people, I mean, it's, it's just a different culture, right? Like people thought we were spies. People did not like Americans. They did not trust Americans. Um, they were kind of bummed that capitalism was a thing because their version of capitalism is basically run by the mafia. Um, so just super, super different, right? Uh, um, then the other one is just sheer brute force numbers. So, I, you know, there were probably six months at a time where I would spend 12 hours a day knocking on doors or approaching people in the street. And your top of the funnel is huge and it doesn't, you know, your funnel is not very efficient. And if you have a sales funnel like that, in most companies you would get fired. Um, but that's just what you did. So, so were you like yeah. extremely motivated every morning when you woke up? Like, I'm going to do this or was it like, well, no, I'm going to no, enjoy the Ukraine and I'm going to do a little bit of this. No, it super sucked. Um, and there are times like months at a time when I was kind of depressed, honestly, and, every, you know, that's not unique to me. I think that's just like when you, so you, have, you keep a really intense calendar and you follow the calendar to the letter. Uh, we call them planners. Um, and you set goals every week and you report on those goals. So, you know, everybody in the mission reports their numbers up to the mission president. Um, and so you're keeping really, I mean, Stephen Covey Dude, was... So this is, this is business school. Yeah, I mean, Stephen, I mean, Stephen Covey, like, it basically took the Mormon missionary planner system and turned it into seven habits like that. <laughs> this is, this is like, you know, when I, when I hear somebody's time in the military and I'm like, wow, that's an incredible amount of adversity, resilience, and sort of like, um, you really developed yourself during that time. But this is that with, um, you know, less of some things, but more of other things, which is like sales, human psychology, uh, marketing, you know, you have to develop those skills in order to be successful here. Um, so I, I may only work with Mormons going forward. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, so well, they're, uh, I think McKinsey or Bain, they used to have a joke where it was like, uh, military, uh, uh, what was it? No, military, McKinsey, or Mormons. Yeah, like, I that's think that's who they wanted to hire. I think that's Harvard, actually. The was it Harvard? Harvard <laughs> Business School is military, McKinsey, and Mormons. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's like, now my my school. Also, that's how I I now believe. <laughs> so, is that okay if we just jump right into some ideas? Because you tweeted something. There's two ideas that I want to bring up to you. The first is levels, because I see you're wearing it. I'm wearing um, it. And Sean and I were beta testers for it, and it was cool. The second is college applications. You tweeted out something today that was crazy fascinating. You said that uh, colleges earn close to $500 million a year, yep. I think, from college applications. What What's that? <laughs> what's that? <laughs> What's that about? I mean, you had such a strong buildup, just like yeah. you gave up at the end. <laughs> Say things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like what's that? What's that about? So you're like the forty dollars application I fill out. That there's five hundred million dollars worth of it. Yeah, I mean, do the math on that, right? And you you actually look at it broken down by like school, and it's like you know UCLA will have a hundred thousand people apply, and they'll all pay eighty bucks, right? Like that starts to get crazy money. Um, so isn't there like a common application? Yeah. So there is something called the common application, um, which I mean, the, the interesting thing is if you're UCLA, like you don't want to use a common application because right. then where's that $8 million? Well, yeah, you, you do and you don't. So the common application, you can basically like set a trigger and be like, yeah, I will accept applications from the common application. The problem with it is everybody who's using the common application is just spray and praying to everywhere. Um, yeah. It's like indeed.com. Right. And it, yeah, exactly. It's or like the LinkedIn, like one click apply unless LinkedIn is a sponsor and then it's a different. Uh, <laughs> no, they're not. Okay. <laughs> uh, You're either a sponsor or an enemy as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. Unless they want to pay us $5,000. And then in that case, yeah, we'll talk about it. Yeah. But it's like, so the way you use the common application is to get your acceptance rate down because you're going to get a hundred thousand applications of people that aren't really interested in going to your school. They're just going to check everybody and hit submit. And now you have a 2% acceptance rate because a hundred thousand people who are never going to go to your school 
um, applied. And for some messed up reason, that's like the main metric that the school rankings use, like the U.S. weekly school ranking. Like the first thing it looks at is the acceptance rate, which is a weird set of incentives to be like the school that turns down the most people must be the best school. Um, but that's, yeah, that's the other game that people play. Um, so there is no business down this path is what you're saying. I don't know. Like the, the incentives are just messed up. Right. So you have to like, you have to work backwards from the incentives of like, what does the school want? The school wants a ton of applications. It wants those applications to be as expensive as possible. And it wants to be able to broadcast as low of an application percentage acceptance as possible. So maybe they're, and like that's who you really need to serve at the end of the day. Like you can serve this the would be applicant in that world, um, but like the schools have the quasi monopoly. So if you don't please the schools somehow, there's nothing so, there. So the business that I saw that was in this space, uh, I, I've talked about this before. This was the company I was I could have invested in at the seed. It's now a billion dollar plus company. Um, and it's called Apply Board. And what they do is they they went to the colleges and they, they basically realized this one insight, which is colleges make three times more from international students than domestic students. Oh, and that's so, a killer business. And yeah. so they went to the schools and they said, hey, uh, you know, if I'm sitting in Malaysia right now or in the Philippines and I want to apply, you know, what do I even – I don't even know that brown is a university. I think it's a color. So, hey, totally. brown, wh- why don't you pay me $3,000 for every student that you admit that's international and I'll just up your international volume for you? And the school's like, well, all right, sure. It's success fee-based, right? I'm making – 30k off this person i'll give you three and so then they went and signed all these deals with all the universities and then they went to the students in malaysia and the philippines who wanted to come to the u.s and they're like hey we will we'll make it super easy to apply right you you do a common app here i will send that common app everywhere and it's like this international uh student like you know um one of those like human trafficking things it's like that but with a you know with with less evil and uh that business is amazing with like ivy leaguers yeah no, that's super smart. Yeah, I mean the the thing that makes money more than anything else in higher education is international students, um, and that's one of the reasons that so many universities are struggling right now. Is I mean, a yeah, it's their the desire to come to America to go to college is lower than it has been in a while. Um, but they're, I mean, not even because of COVID, the Trump administration is basically, I think at times intentionally being like, Hey, if we you know stop this revenue flow, then all the universities hurt and hell with those guys, basically. Um, <laughs> Just fuck so, them. <laughs> so by the way, why, why do schools charge three times more for international? Like what is their shitty justification for that? It's a can. I mean, that's crazy. Like, it's like, yeah, you guys want to come here so much more than we want you here. So you're paying full freight <laughs> for like an in-state student. We're going to cut our tuition in third or whatever. Right. Like basically it's it's international students subsidizing local students. So I think there's probably an opportunity there to cater to international students who, who would like to not pay the three X rate. And, um, and, and and so maybe there's a there's an opportunity to either as a university differentiate by not doing that or um like come up with some shitty system that like it, you apply as a domestic, you, you create like a body double that, that sort of, you yeah. know, like gets them in at the domestic rates. Well, I've, I've, I've always been kind of fascinated by this, but like, I mean, you hear about in the old olden days, people would get into all sorts of colleges and like, I mean, there I've heard the number of stories of people applying under a fake name or like, I mean, now I'm sure they've locked it down, but for a while you could just tell a school you had like a perfect SAT and they'd be like, oh, awesome. Like, please come here. And they never check. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Right. Um, but anyway, um, I actually think there's, there's something to schools moving away from the SAT and ACT that's going to be really interesting. So um, a, a, new, a new SAT, a new ACT? I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't totally know what the right angle is. But basically, if you look at... The UC is one of the – they're kind of like the same way California from a regulatory standpoint, whatever California does, a lot of other states tend to follow. The UC is kind of that for colleges. So the UC kind of sets expectations, um, and they're moving away from the SAT and ACT entirely. Um, and basically what they're saying is, hey, these tests are 
racist because different populations perform differently. Um, so we need to find a different measure that, you know, matches that. Um, and they, so they went back and they did a study and the study came back and said, okay, yes, that's true, but it's also a leveling feature because if you're a poor student who's really smart, there's no way in hell you're going to have the same extracurriculars as someone who, who came from money. So your only shot is these standardized tests. Um, so net net, you know, it's going to hurt diversity, but the pushback against the SAT was so strong that they killed it anyway. And so now there's like this, there's this black hole of like, what is the right way to evaluate, you know, who should become a student? And, you know, one of the main reasons, in my opinion, that employers are like, it's really easy to hire a Stanford grad because you know, they're going to have a high ACT score. They're going to have a high AQ. They're going to come from wealth. They're like, all the risks are gone, generally speaking. Um, Wow. So check this out. Okay, so I'm just Googling this while we're talking. You know all about this, I imagine. The, uh, the, so is this how it works? The College Board owns the SAT. Is that correct? Correct. That, the company's called the College Board. And then Educational Testing Service, that's the one who administers the test. Is that right? I don't mm-hmm. know what that means, administers. What's the difference between administered and... I think and... they run like the brick and mortar, like proctoring yeah, so the of the board, test. College Board like, creates the test. And then you show up at like a, for me, it was like you go to a high, a local high school and there's people there making sure you don't cheat and like handing out your scantrons and stuff. Okay. So the, uh, so educational testing service, that's the name of the company, ETS, right? Mm-hmm. That, <laughs> wow. They did $2.1 billion in revenue last year. And then the company, the college board, it's a, um, nonprofit. So this is all public. <laughs> in 2000 and, 18 they did north of a billion in sales and something like uh 200 million dollars in in profit yeah fucking crazy and all they all they do is make the test that's nuts i mean that's a lot but that's pretty crazy i mean what they really did is got all of the universities to agree that that was the thing right like if you have that then you you know you can do whatever you want on the other side and um, the revenue has almost doubled in 10 years yeah now, um, I mean, it's now like that. And they kind of started this meme that like the reason some kids aren't getting into good schools is because they never take it. So they kind of they they're trying for like a bill that like government would fund taking the, the SAT or the ACT. So like any high school student just signs up and they get a check from the government. Um, now they kind of force it into like, a, hey, school districts, you should really find a way to pool money and like guarantee that every student takes it. So it's that's. Yeah, Good business. Is there a world where so, is there a world where somebody um and uh, by the way I didn't even look up the ACT I have no idea how that big is it looks like it's a little bit smaller, smaller. but in the same bo- yeah. but in the same ballpark maybe um what about is there a world where this where a new standardized test could exist? Well, I, so I think the pushback against standardized tests is going to be big enough and broad enough that I don't know if that's the angle you can take. I mean, there are companies. Um, like Criteria Corp has a test called the CCAT, um, the Criteria Cognitive Aptitude Test. Um, it's basically think SAT for adults, right? Um, for adults entering the workforce, and there are enormous companies with hundreds of thousands of employees that will use that as one of their criteria for deciding whether or not to employ you. Um, now, there's some legal footwork that you need to do because in the US um for basically everybody other than the military it's illegal to hire based on IQ alone for obvious reasons um for some reason the military just does what it wants and like so you can't really get into the military with an IQ of below 85 and the military tests that rigorously and it's fine um and everywhere else, you know, the argument is made that IQ is a suboptimal measure, which I agree with. Um, but it's also a really easy way for employers to, you know, rule people out or to, you know, find the diamond in the rough or whatever. So there's, I don't know, there's still something around how do you test and how do you find the right type of talent that is interesting. I don't know what it is. So I have a half-baked idea here. Um, when I was in the seventh grade, I took this test. I don't know if you guys took it, but... 
it's, it was called uh, the the TIP, the Talent Identification Program. Did you guys ever do this? Mm-mm. We did something similar. Ours was called the Iowa. I took Iowa, Iowa. standard. Yeah. So, so the one I took was actually, it was called the Duke tip program. And it was basically Duke university's endowment had created this thing called the talent identification program. They did it for seventh graders, which was kind of like earlier in the funnel before you even take your PSATs, that sort of thing. And, um, they created this and it was their own little test. And if you took it, you basically got this like certificate that was like, congratulations, you're like in the program just for taking it. And your parents were all happy because like, oh, this university says you're you're talented potentially. And then if you did good, if you're like in the top 20% or 10% or whatever, you would get this like special thing, which was like, we have identified you as a talented person that we would love to have you someday come to this school. And it was their like way of just getting a whole bunch of people to know about Duke and then apply to it. That's kind of what Lead I, gen. Yeah. yeah. And it worked on me. Like I literally went to duke and i remember getting like recognized in this thing back in seventh grade and it planted a seed and so i wonder if you could create a new tip program and maybe you do it like for you know minority students or in in lower socioeconomic classes where you you go to certain neighborhoods and you basically host these free things that you can come take and then that's your leads for uh colleges will actually potentially pay to have uh, access to these leads and to market to these students because they want to, you know, hit their quotas, have bigger, have diversity, but be able to surface out who are the most talented students in these uh, it's groups. Like, it's and I like your you farm system. Like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. that would totally work. That would totally work. Here, here are all of the, you know, minority kids who test really well on this thing that you probably want to come to your school. You're going to pay me 500 bucks a lead to start marketing to them now. Exactly. Actually, you could pay me, me 25,000. I'll do the marketing for you even better. Right. And you basically just create sure. this like uh, this engine ju- that just functions for the universities. Now, I don't know some people are going to probably think that's you know a little predatory or whatnot. But um, I think, you know, I'm just throwing out ideas here. Yeah. Do you want to hear something crazy that I that I've I had? a uh, I knew guys who ran um, GMAT quiz companies like GMAT study supply. Uh, you know what I mean? Teaches you how to do well in the GMAT. Yeah. And they would tell me that a qualified lead, um, like someone who is X smart or, you know, like whatever, I don't know how they qualify the lead, but like they would charge or they would pay Harvard and many other schools something like two or three thousand dollars per lead. Is that accurate, Austin? Uh, for, for what? Like what was the for like an MBA school lead? Like someone to get on the phone with you about why you should apply to Harvard. Well, for a while there was like the the education like hot swap market so like if you could get someone who is on the phone who is willing to like sign up for a student loan to go to university of phoenix like yeah easily a couple grand right and like there's some schools if your tuition is $45,000 a year and you're like an online school you could have a $15,000 CAC per student and not care which is like messed up right um but the reality That's is messed up I mean the. It is, I mean it's just math. Yeah, but, no, I mean, but like the, the, the value the that they're giving. People, yeah, the willingness of people to sign up for forty five thousand dollars of student loans after a phone call is what's messed up, right? Like that's that shouldn't be true. Um, the reason it, the reason it works is because these guys like University of Phoenix, they were able to tap into the government financial aid. So it, if I had to give you forty five thousand, I wouldn't do it. But if I just get to go to school and I'm going to take out this loan and it kind of feels like this later problem that I don't have to worry about. Um, and then you don't deliver on giving me a diploma that helps me get a good job. Then that's, you know, fucked up. Yeah, I mean, they're they're. So this kind of caused this environment where for a long time, there are a bunch of schools that had like higher student loan default rates than graduation rates, right? So like 40% of the people who are taking out loans to go to your school are defaulting and 20% of them are graduating. And that's just like, oh my gosh, that's, that's a travesty. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the reality is if you can we've created this weird world where it doesn't phase people, the thought of paying $40,000 a year in tuition. And the fact that that like people definitely don't understand the interest on that, right? Like if you're, you know, if you go to NYU and you have a hundred thousand dollars in student debt and you're paying off a thousand bucks a month, you can pay that for the rest of your life and you won't even touch the principal. Um, and that just like, doesn't, that doesn't sink in with people. Um, so that's, that's, that's the tough part. Austin, this whole idea of these tests I find to be just like crazy fascinating. Another test that I I was obsessed with for a little while and 
I just consider you probably know a lot about this is strengths finder strength finders is it strengths you know what I'm talking about strength finder mm-hmm. uh, it's owned by Gallup which is most famous for their polling but they own this thing do you know anything about that yeah there there and there are a few different versions of it um, basically to the listener it's like a fifty dollar test right it's a personality uh-huh. test. Yeah. It's a fifty dollar personality test, and it's famous for the book Strengths Finders. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, there there are a few different versions of this, and there are some, um, you know, like every every ATS has their own little version, right? So Hired has their own version, and LinkedIn has their own version, and it's just like if you, as an employer, think that you can get a person to take the test, and that it will make you percent better at hiring, then yeah, what's a $50 test? Who cares? Um, but then you do the math on the other side of that and like, oh my gosh, for <laughs> a, for doing nothing, you, know, you have to develop the test and that might cost you $100,000. Um, but then anything on top of like 2,000 people taking it is just gravy. That's a great business to be in. How big do you think that StrengthsFinder thing is? I've been trying to figure that out. They're privately owned. If you told me that that $150 test makes $200 million a year, I wouldn't be surprised. I guess it's in that. Let's see. StrengthsFinder. What's the name? Of, I guess it's Gallup. So usually I can it's like... It's owned by Gallup. It's like bundled. It's right. privately owned company. Yeah. Usually you can like try to back into it by number of employees or something. Uh, I've been um, trying. I've been trying to figure this out. I've used web archive. I've used everything on their website. They'll say like this many people took it. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's the only guesstimation uh, that I have. What's, what's, what's crazy, that number? How many people? Uh, over a hundred million people have tried it. It says, Oh, it's gotta be, I guess 200 to 500 million a year business. I have no idea. I'm totally guessing, but like that would be nuts. Be- because they do it one time. So Austin, I'm curious, uh, before you came on the podcast, I don't know if you had any time to think about one or two ideas that are, that are interesting to you uh, that you think that, you know, uh, so the audience might be interested in or just, you know, half-baked startup ideas that you can't pursue because you're running Lambda school. Um, what's on, what, Give us some ideas that are that are cool to you. Yeah, there's one that I like, I've been thinking around the edges of it and I can't quite like, so, so it came partially from my experience running Lambda school, partially from, um, if you read the blog posts of Frank Slootman, who is the CEO of Snowflake that just went public, um, you know, he talks a lot about how much like activity at companies is wasted. Yep. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole kind of lean thinking and lean methodology and lean manufacturing and all this stuff. And I've been reading a bunch of books about that because I'm, you know, I, I want to, run a very efficient organization at Lambda school. So I've been trying to figure out like, is there a way that you could parse out like how much and, and, you know, again, everybody that works at Lambda school, I'm sure is working on really hard stuff. Um, and they're working really hard. Um, but I'm not sure that if, if I knew what everybody was working on at any given time and I were playing God, that I would be focusing that amount of time and effort on that thing. So I'm trying to figure out, I mean, I know some companies will use like Asana in a way that will like figure out what everybody's working on and make sure the prioritization makes sense. But I I feel like there's a missing product there, especially in a remote world where everyone's just kind of doing their own thing and everyone's working long hours. But I guess something like 90% of the effort is just unnecessary. It's like, finding a way to channel that. Right. How do you find all the slack in the system? That's not laziness. It's, uh, you know, some combination of like, uh, laziness plus, you know, just not being focused on the high priority things or chasing down the wrong, going down the wrong rabbit holes. This idea that I'm going to say is definitely extreme and I might get roasted for bringing it up, but let's just like play it out and listen to what it is, (laughs) which is there's this guy named Joe Lamont. You know who Joe Lamont is? Yeah. Really? uh, You heard of him? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, don't, I, know I don't crossover. Know. Okay, so then it sounds like you have some type of experience with them, but you can talk about it if you want. But basically, Joe Mont, some billionaire guy who has this company, software company. He buys software companies and outsources the jobs to India, and then he was he got in trouble because he would install this keystroke software into the Indian employees' computers so you could see their screen and where they type at all times, and. Like that sounds evil, sounds crazy, but like, I mean, it sounds. Work? Oh, I mean, obviously, it would work, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that's when, and I've seen there was a 
there's a company I think it's in YC called Squiggle or something where it would basically like it, it, the idea was hey you want to like keep in it's trying to find a non-invasive way of doing that and I think they ended up like they would take like pictures of your screen and a picture of you and like share it with everybody else at random periods but like and I, I think they were legitimately trying <laughs> yeah they're they're legitimately trying to do like you're working remotely with a group of people. Video conferencing is really high bandwidth. What's like a lower bandwidth solution to that thing? Um, and I don't think that's the right solution necessarily, but there's there's something there, right? Like the, the coordination problem and, you know, the crossover thing, you can, you can debate whether or not you would want to work with a company that puts a keylogger on your computer. And I think you'd have... Well, you know, the, the answer is no, you would not want to, but... Like what? I I would want to objectively see the results to the experiment. I would not be surprised if they are phenomenal. I I would not be surprised one bit. Um, I know a tiny bit about crossover and Joe. So I've, then you'd have to ask yourself why and like, is there a way where this is you feel more comfortable doing this that is something similar? Right. So there's there's two questions. Right. First is is Joe or is crossover just willing to pay people that wouldn't have that job any other way? And like, I mean, they're being open to everybody who will take a programming test to decide if you'll be a programmer and then paying them like 30 bucks an hour. Like, yeah, you're going to find people that do not love the idea of that software being installed on their computer, but for 30 bucks an hour, I'll do whatever you want because I'm in Bangladesh and I will live like a king if you pay me that. Um, and just because I know someone's going to take that out of context. I'm not talking about Bangladesh. I'm not like <laughs> the the fact of the matter is there are places with lower cost of living and lower salary expectations and yes. you can pay those people more. Um, so now that I've dodged that bullet, um, the other angle worry, is our, our, our trick is we just step in so many muddy, you know, uh, puddles that, you know, people can't pick which one we paralyze people who want to cancel us by saying so many things that, you know, off the cuff that it, it just becomes a safe space. Actually. Austin, do you know what WAP is? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Last episode, we put the lyrics of WAP into the GPT three thing, the AI thing. It, it had it write more songs. I did it today. It came up with a great new song called walk the plank. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what it's about. A I don't know what time. that's a euphemism for, but okay. Um, so anyway, the other way is you could find a way to get the same like effect for the employer or the organizer without being quite so like you know, like keylogger keylogger in the U.S. would not work. But is there something that's a little lighter weight? I think Sam Lesson um, was working on a company that was doing something like that for operations heavy companies where the, the idea was um, you have people who are like doing very rote regimented operations heavy stuff all the time, but they don't think like a programmer. So they can't be like, okay, here's exactly how you should automate it. So the idea was, you know, the software will watch you do the thing and then we'll kind of spit out the instructions or the playbook for what that is. And then you can have a programmer running in behind them and automating it, um, which is a lot. But I mean, companies like Flexport, there's a whole lot of that happening, right? Like, there's this there's this company called CS Grocers. It's based in somewhere up here where I am in New York. It's the maybe the third or fourth or fifth largest privately held company in America, and uh, it's a grocery. They 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 wholesale groceries to you know stores, and they made a change in the 80s where they started paying their workers by their warehouse workers. They would give them a small hourly rate, but then a they had to hit a quota for boxes packed. Oh, I know like that. This is fascinating. It's called, uh, I wrote all about it on my Twitter thing. I'll, I'll share it to you. But if you Google CS Grocer um, warehouse workers incentives or something, it's a pretty famous case study, I believe. Um, but they like. Built all this great technology to try to automate a lot of stuff, and then for the workers, they just changed how they paid them, and like revenue, like went through the roof. They're like, "All right, we're not like this is just fair, guys. We're not just gonna like people just start packing like so many more boxes." <laughs> I mean, that's the old like Charlie Munger like analogy of when he, you know, he's there's a guy who's working for FedEx, and they're trying to like get these airplanes packed on time, and every night they're failing, and they're trying all these different things, and finally, it said, "You know what?" 
we're going to show up on Friday or whatever. And as soon as this plane is packed, everybody can go home. And it was like, okay, two hours and they're out of there. Um, <laughs> incentives. That, I mean, that's, that's supposed to be his analogy. Yeah. About the importance of incentives, but I've, I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to do that within Lambda school. That's not draconian. I haven't found it yet, but I'm super interested in that. I've told this story before, but I worked at this place with this kind of crazy billionaire guy. I worked under him uh, in Indonesia and he um, he bought this software from Boeing that Boeing used either it's Boeing software or the same software Boeing used. And they used it to like manage their factory. Uh, so the same sort of thing. When you, whenever you have this like kind of assembly line process, you can kind of just measure inputs and outputs quite you know, it doesn't feel like it's like a human question. It's like, you know, how much are you inputting and how much are you outputting? And he used it in our office with people on their computers. And basically like everybody on the on a giant wall next to everybody was this huge projection. And everybody got one, every square represented one person in the company. And it would just have this like color and like this like meter basically. Right. So and like it, green it, and if, red based on yeah, how productive you're being. Yeah. on how productive you're being. And nobody really even understood what is measuring and how it all works. You just knew it's something's installed <laughs> on your laptop and you would just like furiously try to do shit because you just didn't want your shit to go red. Uh, and so like, it was like placebo productivity, you know, in a way, wow. but you know, he could do it cause he was, you know, pretty crazy. He had all kinds of crazy. Like if you got pregnant, he was like, the woman needs to be at home. So you, you no longer have a job here. Like he was like pretty wild and is yeah. now, is now actually in jail for, for, you know, different frauds he committed. But, um, it was a, it was a very interesting work experience. None less um i have two more quick ones and obviously you guys want to be lambda school for many things all the valuable ones and let everybody chase all the not valuable ones so uh, look what do you think when you just see a new lambda school for x come out and what do you think are the ones that you're you guys are going to pursue and what do you think is something you're not going to do that other people should i mean my first answer is always like oh good luck like I, I, for a while, it was just like, oh, Lambda School, that's like, I, I ran the math on that. That's easy. I'm going to do that. And a year later, they're like, oh, my gosh, like, I have to get five things working and none of them are going to work. Um, so this sucks. I'm like, yeah, could have told you that. Um, Has anyone which, successfully done it? I haven't seen anybody make the model work yet, um, which is saying something because there have been, I don't know how many. I mean, the, the one model that does work is like, Hey, you're going to owe us 10% of your income for five years and hear a bunch of videos. Like it's hard not, not to make that work, but it's not like, it's not going to get say, big either. What does it cost y'all to educate somebody? Us like North of 15 K. 15K, right. So you so you have to basically make sure that you're able to recoup that. Whereas if you put the videos up on a website, okay, your cost of educated. Yeah. And then you, you might, you know, your average successful student might pay you $30,000. You might make $2,000 a student, but if your costs are 500 bucks a student, who cares? That's just a very different business than the one that we're running. Um, and I, I don't think it would grow very well because people, would, you know, eventually you're going to find a different way to do that. Um, but yeah, so the, the intensive, have- expensive, high quality one is pretty difficult to make work. I had a guy pitch me one this morning. Uh, give me your instant reaction to it. So he said it's Lambda School for um, uh, mortgage uh, mortgage loan officers or something like that. It's basically like the the loan officer who issue who issues mortgages. Um, and what he was saying was that you know there's this large um, uh, imbalance. You know, same thing as software engineers. Like there's there's more. Uh, capacity for hiring uh, folks who can do this than we have folks who are trained to do it. Um, the current model for how it's done is like kind of broken. It's like run through a bank. You have to like get certified in this like slow process by the bank or something like that. Um, and basically he was like, you know, in two months you can get trained and certified to be issuing these. The people who are high volume at this are making like 300 K a year at the bottom end. They're making like 70 to hundred K a year. Um, and with interest rates being so low, there's just a uh, you know high demand for people to 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 be mortgage lending professionals. Um, so, what's the Austin Allred official quick take on that? I mean, my first response is just a lot of nervousness around macroeconomic environment. Like, I mean, that's that feels like a short term arbitrage that might work for a little bit and then go away. Um, part of that is because I don't believe. I mean, I don't believe that mortgage officers add like an insane amount of value versus like an, a quasi automated process. So I'm nervous about the long term and the short term you could probably, I, I don't know enough about the industry. You could probably spin it out, spin it up and get some cash spitting off. Like the interesting thing about that is like, you can't like 
fail at becoming a mortgage officer very easily, right? Like the reason Lambda School is so difficult and so powerful is because you can it's really hard to become a software engineer, but when you are, you get you get paid really well. Um and so that's just a di- different end of the market. What what's the this is what what's the likelihood that you guys are going to just fail miserably? I mean, are, is this a company that like like uh, all, if this works, it's going to be the biggest thing ever, and it's going to be massive? Or is there a likelihood that you just go to zero? And, and I mean, you know what I mean? There always like, is a probability. The, what do you peg yeah. your probability of failure at? Fifty percent. That's a pretty good. And if I mean, 